0: We are all creatures of habit. Right. On Monday last week, just before Boys Brigade meeting, I went to go through the doors that are over there from the church's bit of concourse through towards the hall. And as I did so, I did What I do, time and time again, I took the door and I pulled it towards me. Right? Who else does that there? Yeah, loads of us. Right? I pulled it towards me. And of course, that achieves nothing. It achieves absolutely nothing because it even says on the door, push. It's, propped, uh, oh, it's not propped open anymore. It was propped open earlier. Nine years I've been here. Nine years this week, we moved into Ryecroft. I must have walked through that door over there thousands of times. Some of you have walked through it more, probably, because it's been there a bit longer than I've been here. But unless I'm really focused on what I'm doing, I see that handle, I wrap my hand around it, and I pull it. The handle speaks out to me that it needs a pull, and yet it doesn't. <laughs> and we quite often do that in life. We see something. And we act on it in a certain way. But that is maybe not how we're supposed to respond. It's maybe not how it should be at all. And there's lots of signs there that tell us that's not what we should do. But we still do it. Our passage sees Peter being a creature of habit... How he engages his mouth before using his brain. He sees a heavenly vision. And before you know it, he speaks about putting up shelters. One for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. That they might dwell on the mountain. That they might have this protection, that they might be sheltered there. This idea is quickly quashed he hasn't realized what's really happening. He sees what he thinks is a pull, but actually it's a push. It's not about the Lord staying put, but about him moving onwards, ever closer to Jerusalem and the cross. This event is about moving towards that day of our salvation and the things being in place for that to happen. The preceding chapter had ended with Peter declaring Jesus the Messiah, but confused as to what that actually meant. And Jesus having to explain that he would suffer when he got to Jerusalem. He was corrected. Things were clarified to Peter. But six days later, we find him confused again, making the same sort of mistake. Thinking that he understands, but getting something of it so wrong. We might do that at times. We think we understand, but we get it so wrong. For Peter, it is as if he hadn't heard what Jesus told him less than a week ago about the suffering that was to come. It's as if he'd not really understood that everything that had preceded It's as if he thinks they are already at the day where the Lord has won the victory. As if they were at the day of the Lord and the kingdom is there in all its fullness. He's not quite got it. It was understood from Scripture that Elijah, who had been swept up to heaven in a chariot of fire, would come again preceding the Messiah. And the text that we looked at two weeks ago from Deuteronomy 18, where Moses spoke, or somebody, a prophet, coming after him, was sometimes actually taken to an understanding that Moses himself would come again before the day of the Lord. Scripture, of course, tells us that Moses had died and was buried by God. But some Jewish traditions of the first century understood that he'd not died, but had, like Elijah, somehow been swept up alive into the heavens. The presence of Moses and Elijah are not simply a record of what had been in the past, the law and the prophets fully established there, finding their fulfillment in Jesus. But Moses and Elijah are a sign that the day of the Messiah bringing the kingdom, Christ's victory day, would be coming soon. Not happened yet but would be coming soon. This is not a time to rest, not to rest on that mountaintop, but a time to move forward, to push onwards, to see more and more happen. Now, of course, in the midst of this, we have Jesus's glowing presence, the transfiguration or the metamorphotha, as the visual change is written in Greek. It doesn't simply reflect that Jesus has been in the presence of God as Moses' face had shone when he'd gone up the mountain and been in the presence of God. There's something more this time, because his clothes are brilliant too, you know. That dazzling brightness that is fully there. It's not just the presence of God, but that his glory is shining from within. There's something of God's presence within that is shining forth. And this presence of God, that this is God with them, is understood even more as the Father's voice speaks a theophany for the disciples that goes further than the words heard by Jesus at his Jordan baptism. Their rabbi is identified as the beloved Son of God, and they are to listen to him. Now, listening to Jesus is presumably what the disciples thought they were doing for the past three years. You know, they've been on this journey since their call. They've been all over the place. They've seen mighty miracles and signs and wonders. They've heard Jesus speak with authority like none other. They thought they had listened. But have they listened with their heart and mind as well as their ears? Have they listened and understood? When we look at Peter, we see him trying so hard, but he's still not getting it. He's still not getting it after three years. After nine years, I've been banging that door into its doorframe. Still not reading that word push. We may well have been reading the Bible for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. Dare I suggest even some among us 70 or 80 years. We've been reading it. But are we still in our lives pulling when Jesus is saying push? Do we fully get who Jesus is calling us individually to be? Are we really listening? The kingdom is of pouring out love to all. And as we see in Jesus coming into the world, that all is everyone of every race and every culture, every background. It is everyone, no matter what they have done in their life. It is the love seen in the parable of the Good Samaritan that thinks not of the personal risk, that thinks not of the financial cost that thinks not of the cultural difference or the time that would be needed before he steps forward and meets a need and shows great love, love for neighbor, whoever that neighbor is. It is not the Valentine's Day expression of Eros love. Remember, it's Valentine's Day on Wednesday. Right? Valentine's Day expression of eros love for the one person that's really close to us. It is God's unconditional love for us sinners that offers His Son that we can be redeemed, that we can be forgiven, freed from sin, made holy, and know eternity. With God. That is the love God gives to us, the love that we are called to give to others. As we have encountered that life transforming love and chosen to commit ourselves to Jesus, we need to live out that commitment to love. His Holy Spirit dwells within us and we are called to worship God with all that we say and do. All we are and all we have, our strength physically, mentally, spiritually, are all to be used for God's glory. And just as the presence of God shone in Jesus, and the disciples that were gathered there, that special group, could see (coughs) God's presence within, we need to reflect God's presence out into the world. It needs to be clearly seen by others as being in us. We are made different. (coughs) By Jesus, by the Spirit, by the Father. The Son of Man would suffer and be rejected. And if we are truly following the way of Jesus, that might happen to us too. Because his way, which is the best way, is not seen as the best way by the world. We need to be bold enough to trust and live for him. As we witness to love and serve him, seeking the growth of the kingdom. Until, of course, that day comes. When Christ will come again. That day of the Lord that Peter maybe thought had already happened. But a day will come when Christ will dwell and the kingdom will be seen in all its fullness across the heavens and the earth. Amen.